0: Welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On site's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller series currently on NBC and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti, and my co-host is Kate Colzick, TV editor at Sound On Site and writer at theavclub.com. Our guests this week, plural, uh, also from the AV Club, are Dennis Perkins and Emily L. Stevens. Hello and welcome. We have a big group today. It's exciting.
1: Hi, everyone.
2: Hi. Thanks for having us.
0: Absolutely.
3: It does seem like maybe, like on this episode, maybe it finally is that kind of party.
0: <laughs> the We're in different recent... groups,
2: so we can't make eye contact and see if it's that kind of party. That's true. Eye contact is crucial for that kind of party, I feel. <laughs> uh,
0: in recent Hannibal news, I guess we we'll want to talk a little bit about uh, some announcements, some, some worries that we have. Apparently... Hugh Dancy and Mass Mickelson's contracts are up And they're free agents uh, Available to sign on Whatever TV shows they would like to sign on That aren't Hannibal But why would you do that?
3: (laughs) Yeah, okay, so I can't lie That is a little disconcerting Um, But I feel like they I think they both really like the show And the work that they get to do on it I know um, from talking with Some other critics that Mass Mickelson was like super excited about Mizumono last year he was at press events for other projects he was doing and like talking about Mizumono so um I would imagine they would be very happy to come right back on should the show get picked up but the fact that that is a conversation and a series of negotiations that would need to happen is slightly more worrying than you know when the show was just not picked up
2: um I don't know do our guests have any thoughts on this I Yeah, I have to agree that seeing their contracts go out was a bigger disappointment and a bigger source of worry than just the cancellation. Because a show like this is so extraordinary, maybe I'm fooling myself thinking that it will get picked up by somebody else. But that's a lot harder to do if your principal players are no longer under contract.
1: Yeah, I just, you know. I've, we've been down this road before I've been down this road before with so many shows that I love and you know you sit there and you, you sort of tally up all the positives and the negatives and you, it's it's out of our control uh, here's hoping I don't know I don't know what we can send uh, uh, to the production company snails or small um, pieces of unidentified meat uh, but uh, you know we'll see what happens severed arms i mean that would be one thing Uh,
3: flower crowns let's go with something cheerier guys
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah it's yeah it's unfortunate but at the same time we can't worry too much about that i just there must be i I don't know how television works in terms of that but there's got to be a way to like uh, jillian anderson for instance is on two series just on the fall as well so scheduling it might be possible to work around an obstacle like that but we'll see um all right, so uh, housekeeping information up at the top before we get started uh, talking about this episode. If you'd like to get in contact with us, uh, feel free to do so in one of many ways, uh, the first of which, of course, is email. You can email us at thisisardesign 666 at gmail.com. You can also uh, hit us up on Twitter. All four of us are on Twitter, uh, and you can leave a post up at uh and a rating at iTunes. Uh, we're having some technical difficulties there at the moment, but that should be resolved soon, hopefully by the time this goes up, actually. Uh, but just in case if you're having problems there, you're probably not actually listening to this right now, but uh, you, can, you can find us in other ways and just stream it on the website. Um, this week we'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 5, Contorno, written by Tom DeVille, Brian Fuller, and Steve Lightfoot, and directed by Guillermo Navarro. Uh, and uh, before we start talking about that, uh, thank you for the listener feedback so far. And we've received stuff over at, uh, at Sound On Sites, previous episodes, older episodes, uh, and also uh, in various other forms online. We also got a, an interesting question that, that you wanted to dive into, Kate.
3: Yeah, well, our buddies over at Eat the Cast, uh, which is another fabulous Hannibal podcast that I, I I imagine many of our listeners may also be listening to that one because they're lovely. And, you know, we had them on for the, the season premiere, and they've had me on for other episodes. So it's very incestuous between the two podcasts. Anyways, the, they talked about something. They brought something up in the recent couple episodes that I thought was very interesting because it just hadn't even occurred to me. And I'm curious what you guys think about this. They're speculating that... You know, in when, when Secundo, Secundo, when we have the uh, the prisoner in uh, the cell, that he actually didn't do it. He didn't kill and eat Misha, but that Hannibal did it. And he's projected. He's told this story about what happened to himself and blamed the prisoner, who may have done something else. Likely did, but um, that and that's to cope with having actually done this to his sister himself and that she was his first spring lamb that that he slaughtered, not that he was, you know, forced to eat against his will or something like that. Um, So like just some of the context in that episode... Um, And particularly the way the Bedelia is behaving in certain lines of dialogue could be interpreted in that way, especially if Fuller and the rest of the writing team want to take a different approach and kind of avoid some of the maybe the pitfalls of the Hannibal Rising literature of like explaining away Hannibal as a series of events in his like in his childhood and i'm curious what sean what you think and also emily and dennis what you think about this because i'm not sure where i think it could go either way but i'm not sure where i stand on it and i think it's a fascinating idea
0: uh correct me if i'm wrong emily or dennis i haven't read hannibal rising i saw the film a while ago but i believe the story there and i don't really necessarily think this is spoilery or anything just because prime fuller deviated in, in certain ways from the the text that uh, the actual story is that uh, Misha and Hannibal were taken captive and then she was murdered and uh, fed to him unawares and the captors whoever like kind of teased him about it and that was like a big issue in terms of generating the the character that we know is Hannibal Lecter that he (laughs) ended up eating her and just didn't know at the time but uh, it feels like what Fuller's doing with that story is, is toying with it a little bit. And it almost does seem like, uh, maybe it's, it's a more conscious thing. I don't, I don't know about, you know, what role he had in her death in Brian Fuller's version of this story, but it feels like maybe there's more complicity there than there is in the original
1: material. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for one, I certainly hope so. Um, (laughs) just because, um, uh you know explaining hannibal's backstory is is in the 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 thomas harris um sort of mythology of of hannibal i thought was you know fell victim to um just a really uh, uh a big pitfall that a lot of um sort of horror franchises do which is if you have uh it's like it's like when they made the 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 early Leatherface movie and you showed how he became Leatherface you don't need to know how he became Leatherface it makes him far less interesting and Hannibal's a more complex character obviously but just having that one incident be sort of uh you know the the catalyst that turned him into Hannibal the Cannibal it just seemed uh, it just seems too facile for the show uh which I think is is better than a lot of the Thomas Harris uh source material so uh you know I I can see Hannibal uh even back then sort of being devious and uh manipulative enough to have set up this uh this enormous uh sort of uh, uh con on on uh, other people and and uh you know that's so Hannibal I hope so
2: I yeah I have to say I it hadn't even occurred to me that we were expected to believe that the caged man was the murderer of Misha, I it just never crossed my mind to think that that was the unvarnished truth. I absolutely assumed that Hannibal had killed and eaten her of his own will, and that he had tricked Chio into imprisoning that man. I, I think Will even Will even says that he thinks she's using this as a pretext. That on some level she knew that Hannibal was telling her a lie, was giving her an excuse to perform a truly cruel imprisonment, both to her prisoner and to herself.
3: And I think that's part of why I'm not 100% willing to accept it yet, even though I think it's so fun that we had, like, we assumed the opposite thing, Emily. It's so fun. Uh, I love that this show can do that. Uh, but why would she do this and treat him so if she doesn't really believe he did it, if she knows he didn't, that's an extreme level of cruelty. Like she says I wouldn't treat an animal this way. Um, so that's right. that's uh, that's what I have trouble with.
2: I think that gets to certainly the central question of this season so far and I think the central question of the show from the very first scene of the very first episode. The question of whether you're observing or participating? Are you, are you, well, Chio is giving herself an excuse or Hannibal gave her an excuse, or she has a righteous reason, depending on how we interpret the story of the caged man and Misha. Is he ever named? He doesn't have a name, correct?
3: No, but it is a fabulous Canadian actor whose name escapes me at the moment, who plays Julian Richings. (laughs)
2: The Thank Julian you. Richings. Thank you. I'm going to keep talking about him as the caged man or the prisoner. I think uh, I, she is either performing a duty that she thinks is righteous or on some level she is performing a cruelty just like Hannibal performs cruelties because she wants to. And that's a big question is why is she doing it? is she Is she enjoying it? Is she observing? Is she participating? Is she a punisher or is she someone who is reveling in cruelty and I think that 's true of all of our characters at this point, all of our main characters at this point it 's true of Hannibal for sure. We have to ask why Bedelia is doing what she 's doing, why will is pursuing Hannibal? Is he doing it? to capture him, to kill him, to join him? Is he doing it to usurp him? Uh, Why is Jack pursuing Hannibal? Is it just to stop this monster or is it to have the satisfaction of upending and punishing the man who's caused him so much pain and seen so much of his inner life? Uh, That's really the central question right now. And
3: I think that also, that theme of observation and participation, like you say, that goes back to the first shot of the pilot where we see Will observing, but in our perspective, perpetrating the crimes of the first killer in the pilot.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's the central question for Will Graham straight from the first shot. Uh, his empathy and his perception are so intense that it's, it's hard for him to observe without immersing himself in other people's emotional or psychological realities and pursuing their goals in his own head and now that internal dynamic has been externalized
1: i
0: think made more uh concrete based on several characters actions and decisions in this episode jack chio and and will chief among them we get more and we'll talk about this in momentarily i think uh admission about what will's uh purpose and, and motivations are for pursuing what he does and Obviously, we get uh, some interesting decisions from Chio as well, uh, which we'll get into very shortly, but uh, we'll shift to the actual discussion on this as we've kind of already gotten into it. Uh, some table setting up at the top. These are your uh, Hannibal by the numbers stats for this episode. Uh, the three highest speaking roles uh, for Contorno are, uh, as one might expect, Hannibal and Pazzi at at 1 and 2, at 96 and 65 lines, and Chio, actually rounds out the top three at 39 lines. Uh, this act, this episode has the most lines of any episode in the season thus far and the fewest scenes in the episode, uh, w- with an average 2 minutes and 11 seconds per scene, the, the longest of which is only 11 seconds, and uh, excuse me, the shortest of which is only 11 seconds, and the longest is the, the final scene with Jack and Hannibal at uh, 4 minutes and 49 seconds. And that's actually... I think we should probably begin the the dive-in uh, uh, is at the end of this episode because <laughs> it's hard to avoid talking about something like this. Uh, there, there are many it. I think aesthetically is certainly one of them based on uh, soundtrack and, and uh, choreography and, and stuff like that. Um, satisfaction in terms of getting a second round of these two characters fighting and, and what this means at this point versus what it meant at, at Ms. Mono um but dennis could you talk a little bit about your your initial feelings while watching Jack and Hannibal round 2
1: <laughs> oh glee um <laughs> it's it was uh i mean it was designed I, the music choice was so i mean at first it seems so um incongruous but i think uh and uh, kate you're going to have to um uh, chime in on the the um uh the name of the piece or Emily will, because I forget, but, um, you know, we've heard that music so often. I, I can, I was trying to picture it. I was trying to remember where I'd seen it and I kept picturing comical scenes sort of, <laughs> um, uh, used a lot in sort of movie trailers and comical kind of caper scenes to punctuate kind of slapstick action. Um, here it underlined, uh, uh, underlay Jack's, uh, very satisfying beating of Hannibal, um, satisfying for him, clearly satisfying for us. Um, the, uh, the thing that was so, um, uh, effective about, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's performance was how, uh, matter of fact and how, uh, assured he was, uh, you could picture him, uh, Playing this through from uh, from the very first moment, you know, over and over again in his mind over the over the intervening time between their last fight and this one, um, and f- the choices to f- of Fishburne, the acting choices to uh, just perform his actions with just such matter of fact uh, dispatch. And uh, there's one scene where he sort of sends Hannibal through uh behind him through a glass case and he doesn't even turn to register it. He just sort of does it and it he just stares straight ahead with just the barest hint of a smile on his face. Um uh it's brutal and it's it's exceptionally well uh choreographed um and uh a very satisfying scene. You know Hannibal's gonna get away, obviously, but um uh uh it's it's good to see jack uh <laughs> cutting loose and it's it's wonderful to see uh Fishburn also uh get to put some of that matrix training back into use his as, as moves have uh uh not atrophied in in the in in the time uh so it was a really really exciting scene really cathartic i think for viewers and really shocking because you've never seen hannibal you've seen him beaten up you know before but you've never seen him beaten essentially
0: Two things there, uh, it being cathartic and knowing that Hannibal's going to get away, I, I think are important details, but it's that's what makes the, the whole sequence really satisfying, is that we you, you almost need something like this at this point, not just for the reasons of Hannibal getting away with everything thus far, but also his teasing, oh, it's not really teasing of Jack by sending uh, a message about Bella, but it's, it's sticking his nose into business where he no longer belongs uh, after not really... Uh, deserving to be Jack's friend anymore and obviously following the the first fight that didn't go Jack's way that it's it's important that the Jack gets a win here especially after saying goodbye to Bella in this episode and and losing um, I guess we could call Potsy a friend at this point given the nature of the scenes that we get with between those two characters so it's it's one of those things where we know that this isn't it. obviously this isn't where Hannibal gets caught but it doesn't make the the sequence any less enjoyable or satisfying or important for us
2: Dennis that piece is it's from the thieving magpie overture I I can't remember the Italian title but it's Rossini uh and I I realized we talked about this after it was broadcast and we spent a good amount of time trying to figure out what piece of music it was. I realized after the fact that what we were recognizing it from almost certainly was a Clockwork Orange. There's, I think, another segment of the overture that's played during the scene where uh, Alex uh, beats up his his old compatriots on the riverside and throws them in the water. And it's really joyful. And I think that's also the reason this is such a satisfying scene is we've just seen Jack at the riverside uh, scattering Bella's ashes and then really ominously throwing his wedding ring into the water. And he's saying goodbye to Bella. And there's a sense that maybe he's saying goodbye to life, that he's preparing himself to die if he has to in his next encounter with Hannibal but then the fight scene comes and he moves with as you say he's he's so certain he's so confident and almost careless he's really reckless he's maybe a little bit resigned he's gone back to the place where he met his wife and his wife is now dead and he is prepared to go into the ground with her if he has to And so he moves without hesitation and without self-preservation. And then the music promises this, and it happens. In the fight, a sense of joy comes back to him. He moves with this brutal efficiency, but as he goes after Hannibal, as Hannibal crawls out of the chamber where they've been smashing stuff up, Jack is happy to waste a second of precious time to spin that that braking wheel as he goes after Hannibal and it's more than the satisfaction of just taking down a villain he is really clearly enjoying this and when Hannibal asks how will you feel when I'm gone Jack tells him the truth which I think is new for Jack that he's going to feel alive again
0: that's his only line of dialogue in that entire scene
2: oh that's right I hadn't noticed that
0: all he says in there is just alive
3: and, and Hannibal's talking up a storm. And it, the contrast is really striking there. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with what you guys are saying. Um, and the Italian is La Gaza uh, Ladra. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in the case classical corner. But no, it's a fabulous choice. I was just, I was laughing my ass off, basically, yeah. <laughs> while I was watching yeah. it. And and there's so much that that scene does. And the choice of that music is a reference to Clockwork Orange, but. It, it it's a much longer sequence than the Clockwork Orange sequence, like, and so just the reference itself would not be enough to sustain that scene if the music wasn't also incredibly appropriate to the fight we're seeing. And part of that is the fact that it's a it's a comic opera. It's it's a it's a it's very lighthearted. It's it's like a dance the with the three uh three four three eight uh, I think it's three four uh, tempo and um the the lilt of it is it's very much like a desk. and because Jack is we see Jack throw away the the wedding ring, and I absolutely agree, Emily, it's such an ominous shot, and the scoring in that moment is like the oboe is just it feels very monumental and it feels very very heavy and ominous, whereas the shot of the ashes and all that was very beautiful and and so it was a really stark contrast for me in that scene, but what we're seeing is we're seeing him let go of Bella so that when Hannibal starts trying to taunt him with Bella and try to throw him off his game it does he can't because Jack has processed that and let it go so we are seeing a completely focused Jack for probably the first time in the entire series at least since he found out about Bella's diagnosis which happens early in season 1 Um, So this is, this is a Jack who's fully on his game. He's not interested, he's not concerned with having a fair fight, sort of like we see in Mizumoto and Kaesuke before it. Um, He pulls the Hannibal, he scores the, he he chooses to turn on the music and self-scores that fight. the way that Hannibal does with Potsy, And then he slips off his shoes in a clear nod to, <laughs> Mir- you know, how Hannibal took out uh, Miriam Lass in the show. And then that's how, isn't that how Hannibal t- sneaks up on Will in the books? Yes. it's, what, it's a, Yeah. So he channels his inner, inner Hannibal. He does not care about being fair. He does not care about presenting, now these two men will fight mano a mano, as we see in Mizumono. Um, And when he just destroys Hannibal, he gets to enjoy it and so do we because Hannibal deserves this. He more than deserves this. And we also know that he can't really die because, you know, Silence of the Lambs and all of that. So so we're not ever really concerned with Hannibal dying, so we don't need to feel nervous about that, you know, because we like him even though we know he shouldn't. Instead, we can just enjoy this overdue beatdown, and especially because Hannibal's being so smug, and he's, um, you know, he's taunting Jack about Bella, who, you know, I'm guessing most of the people who watch the show love her, though, if you know, as much as we do uh, here at This Is Our Design. Um, so that's not cool. And so it's like, no, you're gonna shut up. You're gonna stop talking and you're going to, you know, comedically fall out the window like you would if this was a sixties sex farce and you needed to escape <laughs> from the husband sneaking into the room. Like the, the the tone of it is so assured. And there are these there's a couple little references to Misumono in the fight sequence with the way that the glass breaks on Hannibal's face and the scoring reflects that as well. There's like a couple different references to these other moments, but Along with all of that is the the energy of uh, of of Jack regaining himself and of Hannibal being dealt a much needed reality check. I mean, it's he's been so very self serious and so very self assured, and in every scene with Bella, we've seen you know every scene we've seen with him basically in Europe, he's absolutely in control, and here he's not, and it's it's intoxicating.
0: Uh the distinction there that yeah that he's not in control versus a, a very focused jack for the first time in a long time i think is is really striking especially considering you're talking about the taunting that hannibal is doing it's it's amazing that he just immediately knows the circumstances surrounding that the, about the medication that that jack gave bella and and how that went down and how that might be a, a way of maybe trying to get a an edge uh, early on in the fight, obviously doesn't work because Jack gives no shits. Um, but but it's it's unbelievable that Hannibal is operating at that level so quickly, and yeah, it's it's so fantastic artistically, beautifully choreographed. For one, of course, the I think it's emphasized just because we don't really get things like this in Hannibal much. Obviously, we got the round one in, in season two in two different episodes. And then there was Hannibal versus Tobias was a, a pretty significant fight in the first season. Um, but stuff like this doesn't really happen. And it's weird that it that it fits so well in, in Brian Fuller's uh, vision of this television series because it does. And <laughs> I, it almost exists on its own in this episode. Like, yeah, other stuff, other important stuff happens in Contorno, but it's like this is the the dessert course of the episode that you can just enjoy for itself
3: for me and I wrote about this in my review at Sound On Sight this episode felt very um, it felt very tonally disjointed to me the first half and all the stuff we're getting with with Will and Chio on the train feels very uh, it's just the very heavy, very uh, introspective kind of stuff we've been getting in the first few episodes of the season, certainly episode two and three of the season, whereas everything we get with um, Alana and, and, and Potsy and all that, that feels much more like the plot-heavy stuff we got last week. And then it's like, and I, yeah, again, I said this in my review, it's like you can see Brian Fuller get bored with self-serious <laughs> will, and so he's like, what if she just throws him off the train? <laughs> <laughs> And we just do that instead. And and that's, and for me, that's a turning point in the episode. And then we get, right after that, we get um, the scene with, with Han- Hannibal and Potsy, and you think it's going to be part of this, like, elaborate game of chess between the two men, and just, no, he's just going to kill him. <laughs> and then we get Jack, and, and like, they waste notes now. Oh, and Jack's going to show up there, and oh, oh, who could it be? But no, Jack shows up there, and, he's, and Hannibal see each other, and we, again, <laughs> just, like, fast forward. They just fast forward. <laughs> And give us the dessert, like you're saying, Sean.
2: Kate, I absolutely agreed with your review. I loved it. And I think uh, it, it did feel very disjointed. It felt almost like a collection of chapters instead of one continuous episode. And... The fight scene between Jack and Hannibal felt to me, and I don't know if this is just me, felt to me almost like a cartoon short that's totally. jammed in between. The uh, The music reminded me of the old Looney Tunes cartoons where they'd have a comic opera or a, you know, a Wagner piece. Uh, and the violence is really cartoonish. It's uh, it's. Partly because it's so brutal, and as you point out, partly because there are there is no real danger of Hannibal dying. There was some possibility of Jack dying, but I never really was worried about that uh, for some reason. It just felt very um, quick and brutal and hilarious and exhilarating and very light in a way that is counter to my expectations of brutally violent scenes. I kept thinking of Bugs Bunny. It's Tom and Jerry. It totally is.
3: <laughs> no, that's great. No, I absolutely agree. And like to the point where when I was first watching it, I, I couldn't... It, the first time I watched it, I, I had so much... I was like cheering and just r- laughing my butt off and having fun. But I didn't quite trust it because I kept waiting to find out that it was a dream sequence. Mm-hmm. Or that it was a fantasy mm-hmm. sequence and it didn't act, wasn't actually happening. Especially because Hannibal doesn't really fight back. And we can talk about why that is. I mean, he, he he tries a little bit, but not really. This is, you know, the way he's crawling away. It's it's on all, almost the exact same shot of when we have Anthony crawling away and trying to get to the handle in episode uh, in, in episode one of the season. And uh, it, but no, it, it's it is a Looney Tunes short. It, like and, and even just the way that the the audio it starts out with it being the record player. Um, and there's some dialogue with um, with Hannibal, but as soon as the fight really starts, as soon as Jack pops up behind Hannibal in exactly the same way that Hannibal popped up behind Potsy, the audio takes over, and it's 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 no longer diegetic, it's non diegetic. Did I get those right? <laughs> Where it's no longer yeah. the music that they're hearing, it is now completely you know the the, the audio levels and stuff change, and it becomes this. Separate uh, visual and audio uh, match up, and the, and the hits of it, like the way that he throws him through the glass. Yes, but he throws him through the glass on one, two, three. It's yeah. it's absolutely a Looney Tune short.
1: There's there's a moment at the beginning too of the fight after Jack spots Hannibal in the window, and Hannibal sees that he's seen. You have a, it looks like Hannibal's gonna flee. He, I think he picks up his coat. And then he stops and just waits and then uh just says hello jack to the to the empty room that's almost again like the the they're choreographing how it's going to play out like hannibal it's it's almost it's like that uh you know the the cliche of uh Muhammad Ali not throwing that final punch you know so he wouldn't ruin his aesthetic it's like Hannibal doesn't want to be uh, the guy running away he's going to be the guy you know, who st- stops and waits patiently for it to begin
2: Well that fits in with Bella's assessment that his concerns are more aesthetic than anything else Bedelia, it, yeah it, oh,
0: it does. Right, Yeah <laughs> Especially because the way that he's kind of uh, looking down at, at Potsy, like his his work of art considering like that aesthetic of it as well that it it's not about um any of the moral implications or anything like that at this point it's about the, the things that he's creating and i think that that the observation of hannibal up in the window from jack it also lends that dream quality that you mentioned kate just because it's it's absurd, like how that happens. And it has to do with, I think, whatever's going on in Jack's mind. That there's a pause there. He kind of just walks up, sees this thing, which most people would be just absolutely horrified at, and would either run away or or do something else, call the police, um, and just kind of pauses before running up there. He's <laughs> like, I <laughs>
3: tried to not go after you, dude. You just had to kill my new buddy <laughs> in front of me. It's it's like you can. For me, and there's that pause, like you said, Sean, and then he just, he runs, and Hannibal just, like, decides what he's going to do, but you can see, like we've already said, you can see over the course of the fight, Hannibal, not Hannibal, sorry, Jack, embracing what Bella had told him, this cut it out, and I think we get our answer here of what it was, whether it was Will, whether it was that toxic influence, whether it's Hannibal, and it's like... It's him realizing what he needs to cut out is he needs to take down Hannibal as much as he tried to walk away from that and tried to cut out his obsession with catching Hannibal. He needs to actually take down Hannibal in order to feel alive, in order to be healthy once more. And so Hannibal's taunting of Bella, like referencing Bella, is only strengthening him because it's just you're just reminding Jack of what some of her final words to him were, which is get your guy.
0: That's where I wanted to go next. Actually, we we had talked about that last week about um, what what it is that Bella is saying to cut out of his life and and where Jack is mentally and emotionally at this point and and what his motivations are. Is it just to bring back Will? Is it something else um, in relation to Hannibal? Emily, you said that in that scene where he's throwing the the wedding ring uh, away, that he's almost saying goodbye to life. In addition to saying. Goodbye to Bella is that kind of like what needs to happen for him to be in the the mental frame to be able to attack Hannibal in this way
2: that is a really good question and I I don't know but I think Jack thinks that's what needs to happen The notes that I have from that scene where he's scattering her ashes and then tossing in his wedding ring is just the word unfettered that he needs to disconnect himself from the things that have held him to this world in order to go back into the lion's den to expose himself to the danger that is Hannibal and and not just physical danger not just the danger of being bested in a physical encounter but the emotional danger of someone who can reach into his mind and pluck out his deepest secrets like the idea that he gave Bella the final dose that she had tried to give herself and that he fought so hard to keep her from taking Uh, the emotional connection to someone he considered one of his best friends and who now is his mortal enemy. uh, That's a really dangerous connection for him to have. Not as dangerous as as the connection between Will and Hannibal, but still very dangerous. Exposing yourself to Hannibal Lecter is terribly risky and not just physically. So I think, yeah, I think Jack needed to free himself from caring about the world, from caring about his own emotional and physical safety.
0: It's such a fantastic sequence. Is, is there anything else that we haven't talked about? I mean, I knowing we're going to do double in the details later in the episode, but um, anything that, that, that we just haven't touched on yet that really made the, the whole fight sequence pop?
1: I had a slightly different take on, on Jack, I suppose I've said from, from the beginning of the show that it's a testament to Lawrence Fishburne, uh, mainly that, um, uh, we can consider him a formidable and, uh, you know, formidable character, even though he's, his role, Jack's role is essentially to be wrong all the time. Uh, (laughs) you know he's he's the one who you know doesn't see what will sees and he doesn't see what hannibal sees and but at the same time he's got that force of personality you know so um but you know as as emily pointed out the the scene at the uh at the river when he 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 throws his wedding ring in and if you notice he 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 drops the ashes in kind of lovingly and it's photographed, you know, so they, they sparkle. It's, it's sort of like a, you know, what you would expect, but he hurls that wedding ring away, uh, with something like anger or something like it's, it's much more forceful action, uh, which suggests that he's throwing away more than, uh, you know than than he was with the ashes and saying goodbye you know i have i have a sense that there's uh you know there's that scene with with uh the pazzis where he has the dinner and it's cute and they teach him how to pronounce uh you know the Italian dish that they're having and and it's they're laughing and you get to see him laugh and they ask him about bella and uh and uh you know he's he's very matter of fact he's very matter of fact about i'm i'm uh you know she died. And her name was Bella, and we met here. But there's none, there's no weight on him. And it's, I don't think it's necessarily that he's particularly well adjusted at this point. I think that what he threw away was, uh, he threw away some of the good with the bad in order to get where he had to be. And I think that that's, I don't think he's particularly broken up about Patsy. I think he liked him, but I think he recognized that he was not. Uh, in the same place that Jack is and that essentially in a way that he was destined to be expendable as narratively, of course, he is destined to be expendable. Um, I think Jack is in a very clear place, but I think it's, it's not necessarily a very positive place.
3: Interesting. So I'm, I'm sure we'll get more from that moving forward and seeing how, I mean, we we have to have some of the other characters intersect with Jack when he's over there. I would assume. So yeah, I'm sure we'll get a clearer picture of that. And um, we're talking about Potsy. Yeah, as soon as Potsy goes for the money, it's like, well, you're dead, and you're dead horribly. <laughs> it's like I thought you were new Jack, but apparently not, because Jack would never go for the money. How déclassé can you be? Um, which means you're not long for the show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's gauche.
3: Yes, of course.
0: It's a difficult scene to watch, I think, not necessarily because of the, the violence of it, the disembowelment, which is gross and horrible, <laughs> uh, and that was shot very well, to to emphasize that. But uh, you talked about the the dinner scene, Dennis, which I think, this might just be me, but I felt such a, a tenderness to that, that uh, it, like a fight scene in Hannibal, it, it was really kind of, um strange to experience this while watching an episode of Hannibal that there's this r- real warmth and happiness amongst characters that we generally don't get um ex- except in between you know certain conflicts or whatever as as something is resolved and the next thing is brewing um but yeah that that's actually the the scene that has the most lines in this episode is the dinner with the Potsies and Jack and oh uh, I guess on a on one level like that's used to um make Ponzi's death uh worse in terms of our feeling towards it it's supposed to be more poignant I think that you know here we've seen his interaction with his wife and they're really cute together and we we get more of a sense of the kind of person that he is and and then that makes the death a little bit worse at the same time though um I think it also works just generally like here is what uh contentment feels like in Hannibal and it's it's so rare that that scene really stood out for me. I don't know if it it stood out for anybody else.
3: Even just visually the candles on the table at their at their house just they just glow. It looks like an like a an oil painting the way that the light comes off of them and shines on the table and and uh, highlights the golden tones of the bread, the crust of the bread that's right next to that. I mean, it just looks like it's so warm. The light in this episode. I mean, when when uh, Hannibal, sorry, when Jack is on the bridge, like the it's just aqua. Everything's just blue, but it's a it's a it's a warmer blue, and that makes the the light seem more orangey and more golden. Um, and when you contrast that to the cold blues we would get in Hannibal's dining room, like Hannibal's meals. Often, always look gorgeous, but they often felt very cool, and there was this level of detachment that was very fitting for the character. When we get this really, you know, small, it looks, you know, delicious. I'm sure it is delicious. Papadelle, uh, I'm sure I said that wrong. Um, that they make, it's this home style thing, and but the the light and the the dishes are all very simple, white, but they're all clean, um, and very you know clean lines and everything. And it's just this is a warm hearth and home moment as compared to the extravagance, but the coolness of Hannibal's meals.
2: I also, I really liked the glimpse into the kitchen. When Patsy and Crawford are sitting at the table, you can just see into the kitchen and see, uh, I, I didn't remember her name, uh, Signora Patsy in the background working. And there's an intimacy to that, but there's also a transparency that you can see into the kitchen. You can see what's happening there. And you it's don't not people. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't know if you read uh Janice Poon, uh the food stylist who who creates all the food art for the series. She has a blog. It's on Blogspot. Uh it's let's see, it's poon art dot blogspot dot com. Let me try that again. poon art dot blogspot dot com. Uh she talks about creating this dish, and she says that for the dish of pappardelle and rabbit, it's traditional to serve the rabbit in small pieces mixed in with the noodles. But she made the choice to leave the rabbit in larger joints on the side of the dish so that you can see that it's rabbit. Mm-hmm. She explicitly chose to make it really clear that it's not, people. <laughs> Uh, And I I just – I love the contrast between this very homey, intimate setting and the transparency of it and the really stagy, elaborate meals that we've seen, as you say, at Hannibal's table. That this – this is – it's honest food, but it's honest in more ways than one. It's really simple. It looks really delicious. But it's also not masquerading as anything that it isn't.
0: Yeah. um, And I think it also contributes – as we've been talking about to um, how we interpret potsy's death, which is something that I want to definitely get into because Kate, you mentioned um, his decision to, to essentially just take the money. Uh, everybody else in the episode, you know, has experience, more experience with Hannibal Lecter, I, I guess, um, uh, especially, you know, characters like Mason and Milana who are deliberating in, in, in different ways, but Potsy, uh hasn't, been in contact with Hannibal since you know he was young, essentially, and he makes the decision to go after the bounty. and I wonder if uh, if that changes or affects how we feel about, I guess, his ultimate fate, which, uh, in typical Hannibal fashion, of course, mirrors um, and and this is Thomas Harris as well the the fate of Pazzi's ancestor, Francesco De Pazzi, um, But but Emily, how do we judge, I guess, Potzzi's decisions in this episode that ultimately get him killed
2: you know i don't know that a different decision would have had a different outcome for him i think from the moment hannibal lecter saw him again he was going to die and he was going to die in that spectacularly ugly fashion Uh, i think there is an inevitability to his fate not just because that scene is lifted from the book although it is lifted from the book right down to the orange extension cord Uh, Not just because it recreates his ancestor's death, but because it's a death that Hannibal described twice in the first episode of this season. Uh, In his lecture that he gives to secure his place, he shows two different images of hanging and disembowelment. Um, They are, let's see, one is Judas depicted hanging with his bowels hanging out, and then another of... Boy, I can't remember. It's a scene from the Inferno. Uh, Pietro della something. Pietro della Vigna from the Inferno, um, who's hanging from a bleeding tree. Uh, so I think that, that that his fate was cast, his die was cast as soon as we saw those scenes. Um, and... One of the one of the quotes that Hannibal gives from the Inferno is, "I made my home be my gallows." He he's he quotes that during his lecture, um, where he's giving the speech, his first speech, I think, as Doctor Fell, uh, and I think this connects back to the Potsey's meal that Potsey tells Jack that he wants to give his wife everything, and that's the excuse that he's using to go after the bounty on Hannibal Lecter's head, uh, and. He, he does make his own home, his gallows in that sense. He's using this as an excuse to feather his nest. And in doing so, he, he sets his own fate. He makes the supposed demands of his home life and his young wife and his desire for money into a literal gallows.
3: Well, and Hannibal uses his, his home, his place of work as a, literal gallows. He hangs a dude from it. <laughs> so there's all types of, you know, all sorts of layers going on there. Um, But yeah, like you said, uh, I mean, he, he needed to understand that it was Hannibal and then leave. Right. And that's something, or like show, like instead of pretending that he didn't know who he was, you know, like what would Jack have done if Jack was going to, not engage he would have you know not tried to pretend he didn't know who Hannibal was and he would have been respectful and then he would have said and I'm leaving town <laughs>
2: <laughs> I did respect I have to give Patsy some respect for bringing in that helmet artifact because that would have taken a great fingerprint if Hannibal Lecter hadn't been masquerading as a curator and put on his curatorial gloves as soon as he saw the piece of metal yeah yeah
1: I think um, one of the things, <laughs> just on a um, uh, much less uh, uh, scholarly level, but uh, on a on a narrative level, I thought it was uh, funny uh, where <laughs> Posse seals his own fate. Alana does it for him, where she interrupts the 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 Skype call with Mason just to to look into the camera and say to Pazzi, "You understand, you're selling Hannibal Lecter to be tortured and murdered, right?" We're just clear on that. Okay, and just make it sure. Like, I understand, and we're like, "Well, you're dead." <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just—he debases his character, you know, not just for the money, but but <laughs> it's the the show goes out of its way to make sure he is absolutely corrupted uh, in that sense as
0: well. Corrupted for good reasons, I think, just because the. In a very short amount of time, I think that they built that character well enough so that we we do at least sympathize, despite the fact that it's a dumb decision. Us knowing how things work in this series, just wanting to, you know, relive the former glory of when he was a well-respected inspector, and also to to give his wife what what he wants, and it it makes the the death a little bit more tragic, especially because this is a character who is also deserving of. Capturing Hannibal Lecter, given that this is the the um what's the name that they give him the monster of the Il, Monstro. Il, Monstro. Il, Monstro, Il Most- yeah. Il mostro. Il mostro, yeah. That uh, it, he has a lot of good reasons to to be that person and it's just unfortunate how it goes down. Uh Kate, you were gonna say something.
3: Um well I was just gonna pivot off of what uh what Dennis was saying to talk about Alana a little bit, because how electrifying is that phone call with Hannibal and Alana. I did not expect (laughs) them to intersect this, this soon, especially with her not being in Europe. But as soon as, you know, he answers the phone and it's Alana, I was just like, I was sitting on the edge of my seat. I was just leaning forward. I mean, because it's nice to see that there is that bit of the old Alana back who wants to warn Potsy, who she does still care that this person is going to be horribly murdered by Hannibal. Um, And then when it was hilarious and the delivery from both is is really nice. And and Hannibal does seem, you know, chuffed that she's alive. Um, Not enough that he wouldn't have done the same thing again, but uh, I thought that exchange was fantastic. I was very glad it happened and very surprised.
2: I just want to point out that Il Mostro is not a fictional serial killer. What they're doing is assigning the killings of an actual serial killer in Florence to Hannibal Lecter. They're time-shifting it some, because Il Mostro was operating from uh, the late 60s to the mid-80s. And Hannibal Lecter, by my count, I, I don't know exactly how old Mod, Mods Mickelson is, but by my count, he would have been either in the womb or in middle school by nineteen eighty five, right? Oh he's good. He's good. Here's
0: my here's my careful research there and, and pausing of the episode. Uh the, the profile that Patsy's looking at I think lists uh his birth year as nineteen sixty
2: five. Okay. Well he would have been three then for the first murder. But like I'm I said, he's good.
1: He can he's, do it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that is early.
0: <laughs> yeah, the that conversation between Hannah Alana is is fantastic. I, I hadn't actually even considered the fact that that was the the old Alana coming through, wanting to to do the right thing. Just because the the new one is so strikingly cold and and focused on bringing down Hannibal, um, that's <laughs> that's just another thing like the fight where we know that this like uh, Hannibal's fate isn't sealed yet. But there are moments like this that are just really really satisfying for for characters to interact with him and yeah it's it's nail biting you know it's like oh oh shit like what's, <laughs> what 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 is she gonna say and <laughs> there's there's
3: awkward. a lot of profanity in my notes uh <laughs> after the train thing with chio, which I'm sure we'll get to, but it's just uh yeah there's the oh. is my note there when that happens um yeah it was it was pretty fantastic but what also highlights for me is that as tough and as hardened as alana has been this season and i've really enjoyed this new side to her as soon as she's back on the phone with hannibal that all goes away so it shows you how much of a front that is and how much she is projecting this confidence that like if they caught Hannibal right now, I don't think she would go see him. I think she would be afraid to go near him and to let because she she used to, I think she's still terrified of him and um and how much she was able to be manipulated by him and um would I don't think she would trust that she could handle seeing him and not having him just worm his way right back into her brain.
1: I um just to chime in on Alana, not not to. I don't know what the general consensus is on Alana, but I, I really thought she was the worst character in season one. And I've liked the change in season two, but uh, when she calls to warn Patsy, it just seemed to take all the air out of this this new sort of badass, hardened Alana. There was that talk when she was telling Chilton that um, her injury had caused uh uh, i can't remember like marrow. marrow
3: yeah right and it's it
1: it's it's gonna unbalance it's unbalanced her brain you know it's 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 possibly causing her personality to change but i think all that the phone call to Potsy does i mean as fun as it is to have her interact with hannibal but the fact that she calls in the first place just to warn him it just kind of turns her character as mushy as as it always was to me. I, I just I've never understood her motivations I've never felt <laughs> I mean I love the actress and I, I always have but I, I, uh, I just don't get her
2: I think Alana's <laughs> defining characteristic more than I, I see people talking about her being kind or being perceptive I think her defining characteristic is that she is deeply in denial from the very beginning and this is just a tarted up example of that, that she can put on the costume, she can put on new lipstick, she can try to be that fierce, vengeful you know, she's a lady vengeance figure here, but it just takes one word from Hannibal to overturn that, to take the legs out from under her
1: I was talking more about the, the fact that she called Potsy in the first place I, I don't know, <laughs> it just, it just seems to it's. It seems like there's no center to this character. Definitely a, a good person,
0: which, which I think <laughs> it's it's like not enough to to use as a description for motivations. I think, but the it it's part of her core, and and so the fact that she's been lied to and manipulated by Hannibal, um, that that's a a big part of the new Alana, of course, and and we see the damage done and how that just completely dissolves as she's talking to him on the phone. But the decision to call him in the first place, I think, stems from, from that goodness, that it's it's different from Will as well. Will is somebody who has pure empathy, and so he can make what we would consider morally good decisions for other characters based on that. I think that Alana does similar things, but it's, it's more out of uh, a kind of personality that I don't think we can extend to anybody else in the series in that way. I don't know if there's any other good character like that so everybody makes certain decisions but they're they're different or they come from different places like Jax is a more professional one and he lets certain things get the better of him whereas Alana kind of can't help but um, try to try to I guess do the right thing in most cases by what we would consider the right thing
3: Well, and I think it's frustrating and I think for her like what I see with that decision to call because I I agree it does undermine what we've seen from her this season but I think there's a there's a core of anger and fury in in Alana the season that because of her experiences and I think part of that is also that she wants to be able to be this badass avenging person who so she puts on the war paint and she you know she embraces these uh you know the boxy shoulders and the the pantsuits and everything, as opposed to the very, you know, relaxed fabrics of the wrap dresses that she was wearing, you know, for the first two seasons. And um, she projects all this strength, but she can't bring herself to sacrifice people, even though she knows that's what theoretically she should do. She should be willing to do this if she's going to. She knows the depths of this anger that she feels, but she also is unable to fully express that. Um, and maybe I'm reading into it. I like to do that, but that—that's what I'm—that's what I'm seeing from her, and and the the contrast and the conflict inherent in that I think is really interesting and has a lot of potential if they give the character the time to really explore that on screen and to see that. But that's what I would take rather than the character not having definition or being like being bad writing for the character. For me, it just highlights contrast. consciousness. She wants to be this badass avenging chick so much but she can't actually bring herself to do it. And then she's probably mad at herself for not being able to do it.
0: Yeah. Any other, I guess, comments on Alana before we move on to to the other part of this episode, which is the Chio and Will stuff. But uh, any Alana Mason stuff that, I mean, like. (laughs) Spitters
3: or quitters.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Come on, man. That's. Oh he's, so,
3: <laughs> oh, he's so grotesque. He's so terrible. And because everybody else is so decorous, everybody else is so uh, proper, it makes him stand out all the more. When I was first watching that scene, I was just like, I was like, this is bad writing. I don't like it. But I was like, no, it's not that it's bad writing. It's that every other character on this show is on the show because they were buddies with Hannibal. And so therefore, they are of a certain personality type and a way of speaking and a way of projecting or behaving. And Mason is contrary to all of that, and that's why we want him to die a horrible death because he's breaking <laughs> Hannibal's rules. Um, so yeah, I th- that was just gross, and I-, I really liked the performance though from Joe Anderson this this episode. I think he's uh, working for me a lot better here than he did in the first episode for him. But um, but yeah, it's just ugh.
1: I like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point that he's. It's kind of it's he's offensive, but it's also kind of aesthetically offensive. I sound like Hannibal, but it's like aesthetically offensive that he is able to continue to exist, you know, (laughs) because in Hannibal's world, somebody that, you know, gross and and boorish and, uh, you know, he's he's uh, he's rude, you know, that's he's like should be number one on Hannibal's list. And the fact that he continues to exist is just it's offensive to, to me, you know, my worldview of the show. But um, also the the fact that his deformity has forced him, his sort of already kind of patrician way of speaking into even more kind of cartoonishly kind of um, – it sounds like uh, this is really obscure, but on Futurama, Billy West used to do a, a judge character named Judge Whitey, who had the, <laughs> the most, the most, you know, and the, just the way his deformity kind of turns him into like a cartoon of the decadent rich guy, uh, the way he speaks. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a pretty funny performance. I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I liked, I liked um, Michael Pitt as well, but um, uh, yeah, he's coming along. I like him. <laughs>
3: He's just a dick. I mean, I had to remind myself. I was like, again, when I first saw that scene, I was like, oh, this feels like it's too over the top. It's too much. And it's out of, you know, it's it's would he really do this or are they just, you know, the wait a second. This is the guy who stabbed Hannibal's armchair with his knife last season. (laughs) He is absolutely this much of a dick. And he's also trying to push Alana's buttons explicitly, too. So there's more of the to that as well but yeah no i and that's a great reference from futurama too (laughs) i hadn't realized
2: it until just now but i I just put my finger on who mason verger reminds me of joe anderson's mason verger it's if george plimpton were some sort of supervillain. just that you're absolutely right about that patrician drawl being uh deformed into something horrific yeah he's repugnant (laughs) <laughs> but Mason's jokes the crudity of his jokes to Alana one they echo Chilton Chilton wasn't quite this crude but he was just as cruel and uh, and Alana suffering these jokes and particularly Mason's shows just how much indignity she's willing to suffer to foster her fantasy that she is this badass vengeance chick that she is going to bring down Hannibal
0: Yeah, and and Mason I think, as is the case with pretty much every other character in this episode, uh, um, his intentions and his motivations are are perfectly clear. Um, I mean, what you mentioned, Kate, about why he's pushing the longest button specifically is something that I think is worth diving into, but in in terms of the the grander uh, narrative here, that that it makes sense for for what he and every other character is doing in the episode, and I think we get more of that with Chiyo, which is uh, I guess, our transition into that, which is kind of the final part of this episode that we haven't talked about yet. Um, and there's a, a few interesting, I think, decisions and scenes that we obviously, the ultimate decision to, to push Will over and it's revealed that she knew where Hannibal was the whole time, but also that kind of pause when she walks into the the car and it almost seems like she's considering would it be possible to, to kill Will in his sleep if he were sleeping right now before she lies down. But but Dennis, can you talk a little bit about um where she is at in, in terms of how she fits into the the hunt to to bring down Hannibal because it seemed at first that we bought into the idea that she was wanting to to join will in in capturing him, but now that's kind of more in question, I suppose, and given that she talks about violence being only one way of influencing people and, and it's not the
1: one that she feels is the correct one. Right before she throws Will off a train. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um I don't know where to go with this character. I, I I uh I may have to take a mulligan on it because um it the show, like you said, uh is is uh it's playing it very cagey with her. Her character is you know, she is she is playing it as inscrutably as possible. We don't know where she's coming from. I don't have as much Uh, I haven't had as much of a connection to this character. I don't know. It's not necessarily the actress's fault. It's more just the the show is clearly going to spring something on us. She's hiding things that we don't, um, that we are not privy to yet. And so um, I actually found her conversations with Will. I mean, Will has to, have those uh, sort of uh, philosophical conversations with someone, but they were much more interesting when they were with Hannibal. Um, <laughs> a lot of times it's, it seemed like they were, um, I don't know, I was zoning out a little. It was uh, it was almost like they were talking in haiku at times. They were just sort of talking past each other. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised going back to, uh, you know, the, her motivations if, uh she were willing to accept the fiction if we are accepting that it's a fiction that um that the the man should she the man in the cage had eaten hannibal's sister uh because that man had in fact done something to her and then hannibal convinced her that he had done it in order to sort of uh expiate her guilt he gives her the opportunity to uh to punish someone who was cruel to her by by allowing her to believe a fiction uh, that she she knows is false. Uh, I don't know. There, there's clearly a lot more coming from that character. I, I don't know if I have too much more to say about her. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. Emily, am I misremembering this? But did you say
0: that um, that the question of Chio like reveling in that cruelty is something that we should be considering?
2: I think that I think it's an open question what Chio's motivations are. If all she if the only reason she had to keep the caged man imprisoned for years or decades, we don't really know how long she's been there, do we? um if the only motivation she has for that is hannibal's word that he was responsible for Misha's death or for something equally terrible, then. You have to ask yourself why she took the word of one person to keep another person and herself imprisoned in this abandoned estate. So, yeah, I I think I think that's an open question why she chose to believe him, why she chose to take the path she did, why she's going to him now. And and specifically, how does she know he's in Florence? She says she knows exactly where he is, but we don't know why, do we?
0: No, it's not made explicit.
2: Uh, I am am curious about Chio. I'm going to back up to Hannibal first. Hannibal talks to Bedelia about snails and fireflies. He used to keep snails to attract fireflies. And that's a thing. Fireflies, the larval stage of a firefly, does eat snails. And don't Google it. It is horrific. You don't want to see it. (laughs) Uh, And I think the implication there is that Bedelia is the snail and will is the firefly that he's keeping her to draw will to him and will building that corpse effigy of a firefly that's covered with snails does cement that image of will as the firefly. Um, Bedelia is definitely the snail. She's leaving little tracks, ha! Huh? Leaving little tracks and trails <laughs> in to be picked up by any savvy investigator who's really paying attention. But on the train ride, Chio says that birds sometimes eat snails, and some of those snails survive, and they emerge to find that they've traveled the world. And I want to know in Chios metaphor who is the snail is will the firefly or is will the snail is will a larval stage of something that's feeding on snails or is will the snail to be eaten in a horrific fashion and i don't know but i think chio does have an idea
0: I think my my first uh impression of that was that um Hannibal is the the consumer in this case and it it feels like in many ways that he um it took will in to the belly of of himself the belly of the beast and and wills kind of traveled in in various directions and has found himself to be a different person who has emerged from that um i mean there's no extension of the the metaphor in terms of you know what the snail does afterwards but it feels like Will's the one who's been transferred from, from one place to another. I mean, literally, of course, because now we're not in Baltimore, but also just in, in terms of his personality and character.
3: I really like what we get from Chio this week um, because she th- seems like a really interesting and very strong character. Very, And by, when I say strong, I don't mean that in the sense of... I. She's a woman, so I can't think of other adjectives. I mean strong-willed. Um, and... And I think will completely underestimated her, and I, I really enjoy watching their conversations because, like you say, Emily, I think that Chio has a much stronger sense of what's going on with will than he does, and when he's talking to her it it almost feels like parody it's he's trying to be Hannibal to her Bedelia, and he he's just like saying all these portentous things, and she's like, "Nope, not really uh." <laughs> It's like, did you obsess about how you killed that guy? He's like, no, he was gonna kill me, so I had to kill him. It's not a big, you know, like, yes, it's a big deal. I'm not happy about it, but I'm not gonna obsess in my mind, and it's not gonna warp who I am. I mean, the the like you were saying, Dennis, I agree that that I think Will was talking at her, and in and and again, I talked about this in my review, and really inferring his experience onto her. And so I love that line we get from her where she's like, I'm not as malleable as you are. Um, so I've been affected by Hannibal. I'm, she's probably a victim of Hannibal. But she hasn't, she, does, she isn't this empath that, that he is. She doesn't find herself assuming Hannibal's point of view and perspective and everything just by interacting with him. And so she, it's like she's trying to steer him towards a different path, but then she just gets frustrated and after like the third or fourth conversation, where he keeps talking to her, she doesn't want to talk, he keeps talking to her, he keeps saying all these creepy Hannibal light kind of things, <laughs> and so she's like, "Okay, fine, you're not getting it. I'm just gonna throw you off the train because I can't like 'cause she, if if she's going to come go to like embrace Hannibal, she doesn't care about will being there, if she's going to like try to take down Hannibal, she can't trust that will won't immediately." take Hannibal's side and like screw things up for her. So I just, I really appreciate what we get from her here and the paralleling visually of Hannibal and Bedelia. uh, Hannibal is bare chested and Bedelia's got this totally sweet, um, uh, nightgown or, or, um, a dressing gown. And then later we see Will again, shirtless, whereas, um, Chio has the nightgown. We're, We're supposed to connect to them. And, um, no offense, Hugh Dancy, but you're not Mass Mickelson, chest wise, <laughs> like muscle definition wise. And I think that plays to what this episode is, you know, is make the parallels that they're making. Um, Hugh Dancy is gorgeous. Everybody on the show is very, very pretty. They, I'm sure they all know this and are still probably insecure because <laughs> they're artist types and we're all insecure. But um, I, I I think, you know, it's like this is the this is the real version, the initial version of Hannibal and Bedelia and this is you know Will's trying to be right now Hannibal kind of t- take two and it's just not quite right it's just doesn't quite fit um so I just i really enjoyed everything we got with Chio and because I think this makes her a much more interesting character than the very passive figure we saw last week and I anticipate like you were saying does I anticipate that we're going to find out a lot more about her in the next episode or two
0: yeah that imitation I think <clears throat> relates to her observation about if, if you don't kill him you you're afraid you're going to become him, and he agrees with, with this as well. And we see that coming through in, visually in, in the various ways that you've pointed out, Kate, but also just in the ways that he interacts with these characters. that it's It does seem like he's uh, maybe subconsciously trying to, to become that kind of person. But uh, we can talk more about Chio and other characters in just a moment. Probably best to move on to our recurring segments for the podcast beginning, of course, with Kate's classical corners. Okay, what can you tell us about the soundtrack and the scoring in Contorno?
3: Well, there are two classical pieces, and maybe three, and I'll get to that in a little bit, uh, but at least two <laughs> featured prominently in this episode of Hannibal the first is a piano sonata by Mozart Uh, it's Kirkel 333 um, the third movement and this is the the piece that Hannibal is playing by himself uh, when then Bedelia walks up and when he's talking about has this lovely conversation with Bedelia about harpsichords and pianos and the the kind of tone that each produces and how that reflects life or in his perspective harpsichord is more alive and the uh, piano is more of a memory. It's more mired in the past and in reflection. And um, so that piece is lovely. It's a, it's a, I really like the recording. It's a little bit slower than you usually hear that piece, um, which I liked better. <laughs> uh, I don't, I'm, I'm the, 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 for example, the when you Google it, you'll see like Horowitz and, and Lang Lang and other people playing it. Um, I like the slightly slower version. So I don't know, maybe I'm a bad piano fan there for that but um anyways the the i did want to mention the doubling usually they do a pretty good job of doubling or like having mass mickelson play fake piano to go along with the audio but having they got a little too cocky i think this week by having the camera go behind his back so you can see his hands and you can see his posture and it's just it felt very he was way too high his shoulders and his arms were way too out and stiff and so it just felt very like a kid mashing the piano and i i believe Mickelson actually plays the piano i could be wrong but i think he does so i think that's just like a dis you know disconnect between the audio and the visual visu, uh, visual and probably the bench just was too high and they didn't want to take the time to find a different bench but um that was a little bit, bit of a odd choice but I, I thought the the piece itself is, was very lovely and very uh effective for a cuz it's a it's a simpler piece it's not very chromatic or um Uh, Tonally complex. It's not like this is like a intense Beethoven or Brahms work. This is Mozart. Uh, Gorgeous and and at times virtuosic piece, but certainly not as uh, intense as some of the other things he's played. Um, but for when he's reflecting back on remembering, you know, one of his first kills from Primavera um, from his youth, I thought that that was an excellent pick. Um, the other piece that is featured is, of course, the, the overture to La Ladra, which is, you know, the thieving magpie, which is a comic opera by Rossini. Rossini is one of the most famous and popular um, opera composers of all time. Certainly, one of the most famous and popular uh, Italian opera composers. Um, he people know him, you know, uh, *Barber of Seville*. So, like, if you've seen that that short with Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. That's Rossini. Um, He's a fantastic composer. Um, So this piece that we get um, is chosen because it's a reference to A Clockwork Orange, but also it works, like, we've already talked about it a bit, but it it works very, very well as giving this comic tone, this kind of zany tone to what's going on. That ties in the fact that it's, the opera itself is a lot of um, miscommunication and somebody almost gets killed, uh, they get saved at the last moment, and... All of the, you know, mistaken identity and everything that happens in in Italian comic opera, but uh, it it just works very well. The timing of it, with the staging and how it's filmed, um, there's some really nice hits of the action, like of the, the various attacks from Jack to to co- coincide with the with the music. So that's uh, excellent editing and also um, the timing of certain things are also changes from Reitzel with the music. Like he scores over both the beginning and the second half of, of the, the, the Gazeladra at the various times that we see it. So first with Potzi and then later with Jack um, to add some like more ominous uh, tonalities and, uh, and chords and intervals um, at, when we have Potsy and, uh, and Hannibal talking and then later we get um, like the there's these couple spots where the the music kind of just pauses and we get like these tremolo violins where they're just sustaining but we're getting these other themes from earlier specifically from Mizumono but from you know earlier in the show um, before we go right back into the action it's very triumphant music Uh, when when we have Jack walking forward it's the the climactic you know last few bars of the piece and then uh, and also the the the, it's very martial there's lots of snare drum and everything which is for me sort of the march forward it's like the inevitability of what's going to happen to potsy and also that hannibal will escape but you know that they they will continue to butt heads um so i think it's just a fabulous fabulous choice for many reasons, um, the other piece that may be classical but may be original by Reitzel is the piece of organ music that we get when we cut to the woodcut or the the carving of the pot of uh, Potsy's ancestor. That's organ. I couldn't place it, and Shazam was useless to me. Usually, it's helpful for the ones I don't know, um, but I thought that was you know a really nice bit of scoring or soundtrack. Um I thought it tied very nicely with this this recurring motif of organ that we've had through the season in Italy. It was uh it, it tied it was a nice connection to like this older a piece of art with an older sounding and feeling bit of music and um it was dissonant or um had uh dissonant intervals, you know, enough in there that it it just was very evocative to me. As for the scoring, there's um, I got to talk about the head over heels thing we get with Will, because to me it was, oh, no, like slow-mo <laughs> from, from from Will, like realizing what's happening. This sort of stretched out sound we get in the score. Um, I just thought it was hilarious. Uh And I don't know if I was supposed to be laughing, but I, but I was. I was laughing out loud. This sort of like groaning that we get. There's a lot of uh, distortion in the scoring in this week, like with with the snails and everything. That sort of just, you know, feedback and distortion that we're getting. You know, this more electric sound that we've been getting um, over the or electronic sound we've been getting over the season. And it was really striking in that scene with Will as well as with the snails. The, um, the the scenes on the train mostly like over the course of the episode they progress sort of like as Chio gets more fed up with Will the the scoring gets more um pr- uh, pronounced and takes on the train more and more so she's more patient with him earlier on we get the sort of like smoke like vibes and percussion scoring at the beginning and then by the time she's throwing him off the train there's like um it's like she's she's out of patience and it's a little bit more um energetic scoring it's more tied in with the motion of the train and it's, Then we get this big sting as she throws him off. We get the heartbeat a couple times, uh, specifically with Will, when the stag, Raven stag, shows up. We haven't mentioned that yet, surprisingly. Um, The, uh, let me see the the other scoring that I'll mention because there's a bunch more but we've already gone super long so the other scoring oh god I just saw the timestamp we've gone really long the other scoring that the last scoring that I'll mention is what we get with Potsy when he's making the phone call um, because that was very um, very energetic very uh, moving very much moving forward it's this again this notion that he's put things into motion that cannot be undone and uh, much like the scoring in Misamoni with the ticking clock that whole conversation on the phone has a very urgent um continual uh percussive scoring uh that that is again sealing his fate as he calls mason um so there's more over if you go over to uh sound and Sight and look at my art my case classical corner right up for this episode but um but those are the ones that come to mind for me did you guys have particular moments that stood out to you musically aside from the the fight scene which we've already talked about
2: I can't say that any of them stood out very well to me, but uh, I, I am always really grateful for your Classical Corner because it shows me an aspect of the show I wouldn't see on my own. It's always really insightful and really informative, so thank you. Oh, well, thank you. You're here. That's nice to hear.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going to jokingly dissent there, but I can't because that would be disingenuous. Um <laughs> We'll uh, move on. Was again. was
3: was anybody else going like laughing
2: at the thing with Will, or is that just me? Where he fell off the train, where he <laughs> yeah, the train. Yeah, I laughed out loud. I found this whole episode really comic, even more so than usual. And I think Hannibal is one of the funniest shows on TV. Consciously, one of the funniest shows on TV. Yeah, it's I amazing,
0: laughed. It's amazing that it's done that without Abrams and Thompson at all this season. Where are they?
2: I miss them so much <laughs>
0: um okay we'll we'll move on then to our second recurring segment, uh the devil in the details, in which we talk about little things that stood out in the episode, be they visual or otherwise uh, I'll just kick things off. You just mentioned the Ravenstag, stag, Kate, which I think was good um for us to see and just because that's always nice that something's guiding will in a in a positive light, but uh something else uh. <laughs> Product placement. We got a MacBook in this episode, guys. <laughs> it was yeah, there. This? Uh, um so I guess we'll move in this imaginary circle. Uh Dennis, Emily, Kate, and we'll just go in, in that order. So uh Dennis, anything that stood out for you?
1: Um I think the I don't know. The <laughs> the thing that um uh really struck me, I mentioned it before, the way the way that Jack throws His wedding ring seems to say a lot, and I'm not sure exactly what he's saying, but also the shot of the ring entering the water. And I know it's probably, um, you know, a function of a ring-shaped object being photographed going through water. But the way that it's photographed to show as the ring goes down through the river, uh, it captures sort of a a tunnel of air that kind of goes out to the bottom of the screen, which... um, Seemed really evocative to me this is the the way it was going and it was taking the air with it or it was creating a tunnel where where something of Jack was going down with it. Um, uh, the show loves to to uh, slow motion uh, photograph liquids and it's always gorgeous. But uh, that one that one just stuck out to me.
3: Did anybody else think da 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 when that happened? <laughs> Is that just me? What is, uh, what is? I don't get it. That's Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. <laughs> that shot from the start of uh, Fellowship, where you see the ring go into the water. When what's uh, his face gets shot with the arrow, and the ring falls off. I sorry, my. Tolkien thing is slipping out there. Uh, Emily, you were up next.
2: <laughs> I not for the first time, but I, I, I noticed that the display cases in Hannibal Lecter's in, sorry, in Dr. Phil's workspace at I guess it's at the Palazzo Caponi. Uh, they in size and dimension and particularly in the way they're arrayed around the gallery, they resemble the therapy cages, the shark cages from the Baltimore Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And I think that might be part of the reason it is so satisfying to see Hannibal Lecter get smashed right through one of them. Because we're all hoping he's going to end up back in a shark cage eventually.
3: Nice. Um, the first thing I have here, I don't have that many, but the first one I have is, um, we haven't really talked about it, but uh, Hannibal and Bedelia's sexy times are sexy. Can we just give a moment there for, you know, poor, <laughs> poor Anthony. It's like, yeah, you, you missed out on a party, uh, dude. Um, but that, that scene, the way it's shot, the the lighting of it is all very directional and very soft. Um, and like it's this blend of being very sensual and there's plenty of oral fixation in that scene. Um, not to mention just Hannibal constantly has his hand on Bedelia's neck in a way that should be sensual and reassuring but is at times sometimes it's that and sometimes it's very possessive and creepy and, and sort of terrifying so i thought that that scene the playfulness of it and the way that uh the the physicality of it and the way they shot it, it was just very evocative and one of the sexier scenes the show has done and this is not a show afraid of a of a uh, a Wendigo orgy so i thought i should mention that <laughs>
2: Yeah, every sexy, time he's had this,
0: I cringe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not often I get to reference the all-time great series on stars Da Vinci's Demons, but uh, the the talking of uh, Francesco de Pazzi killing or attempting to assassinate Lorenzo the Magnificent in the cathedral, um, that was something that was depicted at the end of uh, the first season of Da Vinci's Demons, and actually, really interesting to kind of compare the this season that takes place in Italy with that um there's a lot of uh striking I think visual comparisons that work really well uh but that's elevating Da Vinci's Demons to a place that it does not deserve so uh Dennis anything else
1: um the uh speaking of the the sexy times um I really like uh I like season three Hannibal's playfulness. I mean, it's, it's horrifying and it's always on edge, but you get to see him a lot more. You just have a, you know, he's, he's freed up from being, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Lecter of Baltimore and he's more, you know, he's swinging playboy with a palazzo, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) there, there's a playfulness to him. He seems, uh, to uh to be enjoying himself more uh but that that moment where he has the snails on the skewers and he feeds it to uh bedelia by putting the skewer right into her mouth uh was absolutely terrifying to me
0: (laughs) uh emily other details that stood out to you
2: oh uh so many but i think my favorite is bedelia asks Hannibal about Patsy she says does he know what you are and I laughed out loud because one nobody knows what he is not really not even Bedelia maybe not even Hannibal and two it reminded me of Silence of the Lambs of Clarice Starling saying they don't have a name for what he is
3: um, the last thing I'll have is
2: uh, kind of ties in with what you were saying Dennis
3: um, I love the this, like the little detail of the costuming where Hannibal's not wearing ties, but, like, everybody else is. So, like, Potsy is wearing this really wide tie, and Mason's wearing this really wide tie. And then when we go to Hannibal, he's got the top button unbuttoned. Like, you couldn't could, imagine him dressed that way in Baltimore. But he's still, he may have, like, he's, he's like, more relaxed, more European. Um, but um, he also has, at the same time, has the totally baller pocket square um instead um so i was just enjoying sort of the contrast of that this week and that's there's some other things but i think we oh i guess the last thing i have is um then the the delivery of toodaloo from (laughs) mason from joan was was, ridiculously delightful (laughs) and that that's my last detail for this one all
0: right uh we'll go around maybe once more if anybody else has something i just wanted to point out kate and i have Addressed this a few times in, in different podcasts but the very Brian Fuller and Steve Lightfoot way of writing scripts that omits uh, like pronouns and subjects in the dialogue uh, the dialogue from uh, Chio in this episode is strange to talk so much not used to having voices outside my head and it's just that is Hannibal dialogue and once you pick up on it it's impossible not to notice it unfortunately
3: I had reconstructed that glass, Sean, and you just broke it for me again. (laughs) You broke the glass twice. Like, it's almost as if you were throwing my head through a plate glass uh, torture display. Curses, I'm going to hear it again.
0: Oh, well.
2: Good
3: point. Yes,
0: yes. I want you to remember this. Feel my pain. Uh, (laughs) Other little things for me that I just want to mention briefly. The fact that Hannibal uh, attributes a certain smell to the process of epiphany is <laughs> ridiculous in so many ways uh and then i thought that the the line of dialogue the first step in the development of taste is to uh be willing to credit your own opinion that that's that relates to what we do right that yeah, uh our absolutely. evaluation of television or or whatever kind of culture that we talk about, that um, it's important that your opinion holds credence, which is why podcasts like this and other ones that we like and other reviews are so important to the experience of watching something. Um, I think that that was it for me. So uh, Dennis and Emily, if you have anything else that you wanted to throw in, feel free to do so.
1: I'm good. Thank you.
2: I like that as the last line. <laughs>
0: all right then we'll uh, wrap up the discussion here the extra long discussion which I'm sure listeners will appreciate and which I will pull my hair out as I'm doing the editing but that's besides the point Uh, anything else though I guess that if we're going to end on that then there's nothing else that we need to mention I think we tackled this episode pretty thoroughly so very happy there Um, Dennis and Emily anything that you would like to to plug online any places that you want to direct listeners to written work or anything else
1: just The A.V. Club for me I'm uh, I'm there, I'm currently reviewing Halt and Catch Fire And then Married comes back on FX uh, Next week
2: And you can always find me at The A.V. Club too uh, And I'm on Twitter I'm at Emily or Else
0: Kate, you're also A part of this thing that's called The A.V. Club Is that right?
3: Yes, I, uh, from time to time Though I'm not reviewing anything right now Which is both lovely uh, And terrifying so I'm sure at some point I'll be reviewing things, but you can go find my reviews of uh, the most recent thing I covered for them was Beep, um, or if you want to go back a little further, uh, Man Seeking Woman earlier this year as well. So you can find plenty of me mouth, uh, shouting out my opinion over there, um, or at, of course at Sound On Sight um, where my, our, my handleable reviews go up. Um, we don't have screeners anymore, guys, which means uh, listeners, I should say, uh, which is, means that it's gonna my reviews are uh, usually gonna go up kind of late on friday because they're very long <laughs> this week i read about 3200 words between the review and the music analysis so um i will try endeavor to get them up a little sooner but usually you can look on friday or uh late friday or probably early saturday um after you've slept a bit um, to find my hannibal reviews over at ZenoSite. and you can of course find me on twitter uh, at the televerse I love talking with you guys there, and The Televerse is my weekly TV podcast that I co-host So you can listen to me talk about all the other shows on TV over at The Televerse on Tuesdays. It's on the site.
0: And you can also find me on Twitter at Sean Colletti, and my weekly reviews of Hannibal appear at TVOverMind.com. dot com. also a little bit late, given that there's just so much to, to dissect and to get into. Hannibal by the numbers actually takes a really long time, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm not... Yet regretting the decision to do that, but uh, we'll see uh, as, as time progresses. Uh, and, of course, thank you uh, to, to Emily and Dennis and to Kate. Uh, great discussion all around. And uh, Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 3, Episode 6, Dolce. Uh, listeners, once again, you can uh, feel free to contact us in any of the aforementioned ways. Please do, if you have something to say or would like to leave a rating and let us know how we're doing, Uh, We would greatly appreciate that, but until next week, this has been another episode of This Is Our Design.